Chapter 11. On any, on an afternoon of the following week, Scarlet came home from the hospital weary and indignant. She was tired from standing on her feet all morning and irritable because Mrs. Merriweather had scolded her sharply for sitting on a soldier's bed while she dressed his wounded arm. Aunt Pity and Melanie, bonneted in their best, were on the porch with Wade and Prissy, waiting for their weekly round of calls. Scarlet asked to be excused from accompanying them and went upstairs to her room. When the last sound of carriage wheels had died away and she knew the family was safely out of sight, she slipped quietly into Melanie's room and turned the key in the lock. It was a prim, virginal little room, and it lay still and warm in the slanting rays of the four o'clock sun. The floors were glistening and bare except for a few bright rag rugs and the white walls on a unornamented save for one corner which Melanie had fitted up as a shrine. Here, on her draped Confederate flag, hung the golden, gold-hilted saber that Melanie's father had carried in the Mexican War, the same saber Charles had worn away to war. Charles' sash and pistol belt hung there, too, with his revolver in the holster. Between the saber and the pistol was the dagger type of Charles himself, very stiff and proud in his gray uniform, his great brown eyes shining out of the frame and a shy smile on his lips. Scarlet did not even glance at the picture, but went unhesitantly across the room to a square rosewood writing box that stood on the table beside the narrow bed. From it, she took a pack of letters tied together with a blue ribbon addressed in Ashley's hand to Melanie. On the top was a letter which had come that morning and this one she opened. When Scarlet first began secretly reading these letters, she had been so stricken of conscience and so fearful of discovery that she could hardly open the envelopes for trembling. Now, her never-too-scrumptious sense of honor was dulled by repetition of offense and even fear of discovery had subsided. Occasionally, she thought she was with a sinking heart. What would Mother say if she knew? She knew Ellen would rather see her dead than know her guilty of such dishonor. This had worried Scarlet at first, for she still wanted to be like her mother in every respect. But the temptation to read the letters was too great, and she put the thought of Ellen out of her mind. She had become adept at putting unpleasant thoughts out of her mind these days. She had learned to say, I won't think of this or that bothersome thought now. I'll think about it tomorrow. Generally, when tomorrow came, the thought either did not occur at all, or it was so attenuated by the delay, it was not very troublesome. So the matter of Ashley's letters did not lie very heavily on her conscience. Melanie was always generous with the letters, reading parts of them out loud to Aunt Pity and Scarlet, but it was the part she did not read that tormented Scarlet, that drove her to surreptitious reading of her sister-in-law's mail. She had to know if Ashley had come to love his wife since marrying her. She had to know if he even pretended to love her. Did he address tender endearments to her? What sentiments did she, he express and with what warmth? She carefully smoothed out the letter. Ashley's small, even writing leaped out at her as she read, My dear wife, and she breathed in relief. He wasn't calling Melanie, darling, or sweetheart yet. My dear wife, you write to me saying you are alarmed 
Least I be concealing my true thoughts from you, and you ask me what is accompanying my mind these days. Mother of God, thought Scarlet in a pen of guilt, concealing his real thoughts. Can Millie have read his mind, or my mind? Does she suspect that he and I... Her hands trembled with fright as she held the letter closer, but as she read the next paragraph, she relaxed. Dear wife, if I have concealed aught from you, it is because... I did not wish to lay a burden on your shoulders to add to your worries for my physical safety with those of my mental tomorrow, but I can keep something from you, for you know me too well. I can keep nothing from you, for you know me too well. Do not be alarmed. I have no wound. I have not been ill. I have enough to eat, and occasionally I beg to sleep in. A soldier can ask for no more. But, Melanie, heavy thoughts lie in my heart, and I will open my heart to you. These summer nights I lie awake, long after the camp is sleeping, and I look up at the stars, and over and over I wonder, Why are you here, Ashley Wilkes? What are you fighting for? Not for honor and glory, certainly. War is a dirty business, and I do not like dirt. I am not a soldier. I have no desire to seek that bubble reputation even in the cannon's mouth yet here i am at the wars whom god never intended to be other than a studious country gentleman for melanie bugles do not stir my blood nor drums entice my feet and i see too clearly that we have been betrayed betrayed by our arrogant southern selves believing that one of us could whip a dozen yankees believing that king cotton could rule the world, betrayed too by words and catch praises, prejudices and hatreds coming from the mouths of those highly placed, those men whom we respected and revered, King Cotton, slavery states, rights, damn Yankees. And so when I lie on my blanket and look up at the stars and say, what are you fighting for? I think of states' rights and cotton and the darkies and the Yankees whom we have been bred to hate. And I know that none of these is the reason why I was fighting. Instead, I see twelve oaks and I remember how the moonlight slants across the white columns and the unearthly ray of the ma magnolias look opening under the moon and how the climbing roses make the side porch shady even at the hottest moon. And I see mother sewing there, and as she did when I was a little boy. And I hear the darkies coming home across the fields of dusk, tired and singing and ready for supper. And the sound of the world bless as the bucket goes down into the cool well. And there's the long view down the road to the cool, to the river, across the cotton fields, and the mist rising from the bottom but lands in the twilight. And that is why I'm here, who have no love of death or misery or glory, and no hatred of for anyone. Perhaps that is what is called patriotism, love of home and country. But Melanie, it goes deeper than that. For Melanie, these things I have samed are but the symbols of the thing for which I risk my life, symbols of the kind of life I love, but for I am fighting for the old days, the old ways I love so much, but which, I fear, are now gone forever. No matter how they die, may fall. 
for win or lose, we lose just the same. If we win this war and have the cotton kingdom of the, our dreams, we will have lost, for we will become a different people, and the old quiet ways will go. The world will be at our doors, clamoring for cotton, and we can command our own price. Then I fear we will become like the Yankees, at whose money-making activities, acquis acquisition, acquisitiveness, and commercialism we now sneer. And if we lose, Melanie, if we lose, I am not afraid of danger, or capture, or wounds, or even death. If death must come, but I do fear that once this war is over, we will never get back to the old times. And I belong in those old times. I do not belong in this mad present of killing, and I fear I will not fit into any for future, try though I may. Nor are you, my dear, for you and I are the same blood. I do not know what the future will bring, but it cannot be as beautiful or as satisfying as the past. I lie and look at the boys sleeping near me, and I wonder if the twins, or Alex or Cade, think these same thoughts. I wonder if they know they are fighting for a cause that is lost the minute the first shot was fired. For our cause is really our own way of living, and that is gone already. But I do not think they think these things, and they are lucky. I had not thought of this for us when I asked you to marry me. I had thought of life going on at Twelve Oaks as if it as it had always done peacefully, easily, unchanging. We are alike, Melanie, loving the same quiet things, and I saw before us a long stretch of uneventful years in which to road, read, hear music, and dream. But not this, never this. That this could happen to us all, this reckon of old ways, this bloody slaughter and hate. Melanie, nothing is worth it. States' rights, nor slaves, nor cotton. Nothing is worth what is happening to us now. And what may happen, for if the Yankees whip us in the future, will be one of incredible horror. And my dear, they may yet whip us. I should not write these words. I should not even think them. But you have asked me what was in my heart, and the fear of defeat is there. Do you remember at the bar barbecue the day our engagement was announced that a man named Butler, a Charlestonian by his accent, nearly caused a fight by his remarks about the ignorance of Southerners? Do you recall how the twins wanted to shoot him because he said we had few foundries and factories mills and ships, arsenals and machine shops? Do you recall how we said the Yankee fleet could bottle us up so tightly we could not ship out our cotton? He was right. We are fighting the Yankees now. New rifles with revolutionary, revolutionary war medical supplies. Oh, revolutionary war muskets. And soon the blockade will be too tight for even medical supplies to slip in. We should have paid heed to cynics like Butler. You know, who knew? Instead of statesmen who felt and talked. He said, in effect, that the South had nothing with which to wage war but cotton and arrogance. Our cotton is worthless, and what he called arrogance is all that is left. But I call that arrogance matchless courage if... But Scarlet carefully folded up the letter without finishing it and thrust it back into the envelope, too bored to read further. 
Besides, the tone of the letter vaguely depressed her with its foolish talk of defeat. After all, she wasn't reading Melanie's mail to, to learn Ashley's puzzling and uninteresting ideas. She had had to listen to enough of them when he sat in the porch at Tar in days gone by. All she wanted to know was whether he wrote impassioned letters to his wife. So far, he had not. She had read every letter in the writing box, and there was nothing in any one of them that a brother might not have written to his sister. I mean, I don't think a brother would write that to his sister personally, but um, they were affectionate, humorous, decursive, but not the letters of a lover. Scarlet had received too many, too many, wait, sorry, I lost my pace. Too many, there you go. Ardent love letters herself not to recognize the authentic note of passion when she saw it, and that note was missing. As always, after her secret readings, a feeling of smug satisfaction enveloped her, for she felt certain that Ashley still loved her, and always she wondered sneeringly why Melanie did not realize that Ashley only loved her as a friend. Melanie evidently found nothing lacking in her husband's messages, but Melanie had had no other man's love letters with which to compare Ashley's. He writes very crazy letters, Scarlet thought. If ever any husband of mine wrote me such twaddle-twaddle, he'd certainly hear from me. Why, even Charlie wrote better letters than these. She flipped back the edges of the letters, looking at the dates, remembering the contents. In them, there were no fine descriptive pages of... What is that word? By... 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 B-I-V-O-U-A-C-S. And charges such as Darcy Mead wrote his parents or poor... Dallas McClure had written his old maid sisters, Mrs. Faith and Hope, the maids and McClures, proudly read these letters all over the neighborhood, and Scarlet had frequently felt a secret shame that Melanie had no such letters from Ashley to read aloud at sewing circles. It was as though when writing Melanie, Ashley tried to ignore the war altogether, and sought to draw about the two of them a magic circle of timelessness, shutting out everything that had happened since Fort Sumner was the news of the day. It was almost as if he were trying to believe there wasn't any war. He wrote of books which he and Melanie had read and songs they had sung, of old friends they knew and places he had visited on his grand tour. Through the letters ran a wistful yearning to be back home at Twelve Oaks, and for pages he wrote of the haunting and the long rides through the still forest paths under frosty autumn stars, the barbecues, the fish fries, the quiet of moonlight moonlight nights, and the serene charm of the old house. She thought of the words in the letter she had just read. Not this, never this. And they seemed to cry of a tormented soul facing something he could not face yet must face. It puzzled her, for if he was not afraid of wounds and death, what was he? What was it he feared? Unanalytical, she struggled with the complex thought. The word disturbs him, and he, he doesn't like things that disturb him. Me, for instance. He loved me, but he was afraid to marry me because for fear I'd 
upset his way of thinking and living. No, it wasn't exactly that he was afraid. Ashley isn't a coward. He couldn't be when, where he's been mentioned in dispatches, and when Colonel Sloan wrote that letter to Melly all about his gallant conduct in leading the charge. Once he's made up his mind to do something, no one could be braver or more determined, but he lives inside his head instead of outside in the world, and he hates to come out into the world, and oh, I don't know what it is. If I just understood this one thing about him years ago, I know he'd have been married me. She stood for a moment, holding the letters to her head, to her breast, thinking longingly of Ashley. Her emotions toward him had not changed since the day when she first fell in love with him. They were the same emotions that struck her speechless that day when she was 14 years old and she had stood on the porch of Tara and seen Ashley right up smiling, his hair shining silver in the morning sun. Her love was still a young girl's ad- adoration for a man she could not understand, a man who possessed all the qualities she did not own by which she admired. He was still a young girl's dream of the perfect night, and her dream asked no more than acknowledgement of his love, went no further than hopes of a kiss. After reading the letters, she felt certain he did love her, Scarlet, even though he had married Melanie, and that certainly certainty was almost all that she desired. She was still that young and untouched. Had Charles, with his fumbling awkwardness and his embarrassing intimacies, tapped any of the deep vein of passionate feeling within her, her dreams of Ashley would not be ending with a kiss. But those few moonlight nights alone with Charles had not touched her emotions or ripened her to maturity. Charles had awakened no idea of what passion might be, or tenderness, or true intimacy of body or spirit. So she, yeah. All that passion meant to her was servitude to inexplicable male madness, unshared by females, a painful and embarrassing process that led inevitably to the still more painful process of a childbirth. That marriage should be like this was no surprise at all or to her. Ellen had hinted before the wedding that marriage was something women must bear with dignity and fortitude, and the whispered comments of other matrons since her widowhood had confirmed this. Scarlet was glad to be done with passion and marriage. She was done with marriage, but not with love, for her love for Ashley was something different, having nothing to do with passion or marriage something sacred and breathtakingly beautiful, an emotion that grew stealthily through the long days of an unforced silence, feeding on off-thumbed memories and hopes. She sighed as she carefully tied the ribbon about the packet, wondering for the thousandth time just what it was in Ashley that ended her, eluded her understanding she tried to think she, the matter to some satisfactory conclusion, but, as always, the conclusion ev- evaded her uncomplex mind. She put the letters back in the t- lap secretary and closed the lid. Then she frowned, for her mind went back to her last part of the letter she had just read, to his mention of Captain Butler. 
how strange that Ashley should be impressioned by impressed by something that Scamp had said a year ago. Undeniably, Captain Butler was a scamp for all that he danced divinely. No one but a scamp would say the things about the confederacy that he had said at the bazaar. She crossed the room to the mirror and patted her smooth hair approvingly. Her spirits rose, as always, at the sight of her white skin and slanting green eyes and the smile and this. Wait, hold on. And she smiled to bring out her dimples. Then she dismissed Captain Butler from her mind as she happily viewed her reflection, remembering how Ashley had always liked her dimples. No paying or conscious at loving another woman's husband. Reading that woman's mail disturbed her pleasure in her, in her youth and charm and her renewed assurance of Ashley's love. She unlocked the door and went down the dim winding stair with a light heart. Halfway down, she began singing, When the Cruel Warrior is Over. Chapter 12 The war went on successfully for the most part, but people had stopped saying, One more victory and the war is over. Just as they had stopped saying the Yankees were cowards, it was obvious to all now that the Yankees were far from cowardly and that it would take more than one victory to conquer them. However, there were the Confederate victories in Tennessee scored by General Morgan and General Forrest, and the triumph of the Second Battle of Bull Run hung up like visible Yankee scalps to gloat over, but there was a heavy price on these scalps. The hospitals and homes of Atlanta were overflowing with the sick and wounded, and more and more women were appearing in black. The Montanus Groves of soldiers' graves at Oakland Cemetery stretched longer every day. Confederate money had dropped alarmingly, and the price of food and clothing had risen accordingly. The commissary was laying much heavy levies on foodstuffs that the, tabby, the tables of Atlanta were beginning to suffer. White flour was scarce and so expensive that cornbread was universal instead of biscuits, rolls, and waffles. The butcher shops carried almost no beef and very little mutton, and that mutton cost so much only the rich could afford it. However, there was still plenty of hog meat as well as chickens and vegetables. The Yankee blockade about the Confederate ports had tightened in luxuries such as tea, coffee, silks, whalebones, stays, colognes, Fashion magazines and books were scarce and dear. Even the cheapest cotton goods had skyrocketed in price, and ladies were regretfully making their old dresses and do another season. Looms that had gathered dust for years had been brought down from attics, and there were webs of homespun to be found in nearly every parlor. Everyone, soldiers, civilians, women, children, and Negroes, began to wear homespun. Gray, as the color of the Confederate uniform, practically disappeared and a homespun of a butternut shade took its place. Already, the hospitals were worrying about the scarcity of quinine, calomel, opium, chloroform, and iodine. Linen and cotton bandages were too precious now to be thrown away than when used, and every lady who nursed at the hospitals brought home 
baskets of bloody strips to be washed and ironed and returned for use on other sufferers. But to Scarlet, newly emerged from the chrysalis of widowhood, all the war meant was a time of gaiety and excitement. Even the small privations of clothing and food did not annoy her. So happy was she to be in the world again. When she thought of the dull times of the past year, with the days going by one very much like another, life seemed to have quickened to an incredible speed. Every day dawned to, as an exciting adventure, a day in which she would meet new men who would ask to call on her, tell her how pretty she was, and how it was a privilege to fight and perhaps to die for her. She could and did love Ashley with the last breath in her body, but that did not prevent her from inveiling other men into asking to marry her. The ever-present war in the background lent a pleasant informality to social relations, an informality which older people viewed with alarm. Mothers found strange men calling on their daughters, men who came without letters of introduction and whose antecedents were unknown. To their horror, mothers found their daughters holding hands with these men, Mrs. Merriweather, who had never kissed her husband until after the wedding ceremony, could scarcely believe her eyes when she caught Mary Bell kissing the little Suvoff, Rene Picard, and her consternation was even greater when Mary Bell refused to be ashamed. Even the fact that Rene immediately asked for her hand did not improve matters. Mrs. Merriweather felt that the South was heading for a complete moral collapse and frequently said so. Other mothers con- concurred heartily with her, blamed it on the war. The men who expected to die within a week or a month could not wait a year before they begged to call a girl by her first name, with Miss, of course, preceding it. Nor would they go through the formal and protracted courtships which good-mannered manners had prescribed before the war. They were likely to propose in three or four months— and girls who knew very well that a lady always refused a gentleman the first three times he proposed rushed headlong to accept the first time. This informality made the war a lot of fun for Scarlet. Except for the messy business of nursing and the bore of bandage rolling, she did not care if the war lasted forever. In fact, she could endure the hospital with equanimity now because it was a perfect happy hunting ground. The helpless wounded succumbed to her charms without a struggle, renew their bandages, wash their faces, pat, pat up their pillows, and fan them, and they fell in love. Oh, it was heaven after the last dreary year. Scarlet was back again where she had been before she married Charles, and it was as if she had never married him, never felt the shock of his death, never bore weighed. War and marriage and childbirth had passed over her without touching any deep cord within her, and she was unchanged. She had a child, but he was cared for so well by the others in the red brick house, she could almost forget him. In her mind and heart, she was Scarlett O'Hara again, the belle of the county. Her thoughts and activities were the same as they had been in the old days, but the field of her activities had widened immensely. Careless of the disapproval of Aunt Pity's friends, she behaved as she had behaved before her marriage. 
went to parties, danced, went riding with soldiers, flirted, did everything she had done as a girl except stop wearing mourning. This was... This she knew would be a straw that would break the backs of Pitypat and Melanie. She was as charming a widow as she had been a girl, pleasant when she had her own way, obliging as long as it did not discommode her, vain of her looks and her popularity. She was happy now, where a few weeks before she had been miserable, happy with her bow and their reassurances of her charm, as happy as she could be with Ashley married to Melanie and her and in danger. But somehow it was easier to bear the thought of Ashley belonging to someone else when he was far away. With the hundreds of miles stretching between Atlanta and Virginia, he sometimes seemed as much hers as Melanie's. So the autumn months of 1862 went swiftly by with nursing, dancing, driving, and bandage rolling, taken up all the time she did not spend on brief visits to Tara. These visits were disappointing, for she had little opportunity for the long, quiet talks with her mother, to which she looked forward while in Atlanta. No time to sit by Ellen while she sewed, smelling the faint fragrance of lemon verbena, sachet as her skirts rustled, feeling her soft hands on her cheek in a gentle caress. Ellen was thin and preoccupied now, and on her feet from morning until long after the plantation was asleep. The demands of the Confederate commissary were growing heavier by the month, and hers was the task of making Tara produce. Even Gerald was busy for the first time in many years, for he could get no overseer to take Jonas Wilkinson's place, and he was riding his own acres with Ellen too busy for more than a goodnight kiss and Gerald in the fields all day, Scarlet found Tara boring. Even her sisters were taken up with own, their own concerns. Swellen had now come to an understanding with Frank Kennedy and saying when this cruel war is over, with an arc meaning Scarlet found, well, ugh, well nigh unendurable. And Corrine was too wrapped up in dreams of Brent Tarleton to be interesting company. Though Scarlet always went home to Tara with a happy heart, she was never sorry when the inevitable letters came from Pity and Melanie, begging her to return. Ellen always sighed at these times, saddened by the thought of her oldest daughter and her only grandchild leaving her. But I mustn't be selfish. I keep you here when you are needed to nurse in Atlanta, she said. Only, only, my darling, it seems that I never get the time to talk to you and to feel that you are my own little girl again before you are gone from me. I'm always your little girl, Scarlet would say and bury her head upon Ellen's breast, her guilt rising up to accuse her. She did not tell her mother that it was the dancing and the bow she, that, which drew her back to Atlanta, and not the service in the Confederacy. There were many things she kept from her mother these days, but most of all, she kept secret the fact that Rep Butler called frequently at Aunt Pity's Pat's house. During the months that followed her the bazaar, Rhett called whenever he was in town, taking Scarlet riding in the, his carriage, 
escorting her to danceables and bazaars and waiting outside the hospital to drive her home. She lost her fear of his betraying her secret, but there always lurked in the back of her mind the disquieting memory that he had seen her at her worst and knew the truth about Ashley. It was this knowledge that checked her tongue when he annoyed her, and he annoyed her frequently. He was in his mid-thirties, older than any beau she had ever had, and she was a helpless as a child to control and handle him as she had handled beau nearer to her own age. He always looked as if nothing had ever surprised him, and much had amused him in. And when he had gotten her into a speechless temper, she felt that she amused him more than anything in the world. Frequently, she flared into open wrath under his expert baiting, for she had Gerald's Irish temper along with the deceptive sweetness of face she had inherited from Ellen. Hitherto, she had never bothered to control her temper except in Ellen's presence. Now it was painful to have to choke back words for fear of his amused grin. If only he would ever lose his temper too, then she would not feel at much such a disadvantage. After tilts with him from which she seldom emerged the victor, she vowed he was impossible, ill-bred, and no gentleman, and she would have nothing more to do with him. But sooner or later, he returned to Atlanta, called presumably on Aunt Pity, and presented Scarlet with overdone gallantry, a box of bonbons he had thought brought her from Nassau. 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 Uh, I think that's in New Hampshire. Ugh. Or preempted a seat by her at a musical or claimed her at a dance. And she usually so amused by his blank imp- impudence that she laughed and overlooked his past misdeeds until the next occurred. For all his exasperating quality, she grew to look forward to his calls. There was something exciting about him that she could now analyze, something different from any man she had ever known. There was something breathtaking in the grace of his big body, which made his very entrance into her room like an abrupt physical impact, something in the impotence and bland mockery of his dark eyes that challenged her spirit to subdue him. It's almost like I was in love with him, she thought bewildered. But I'm not, and I just can't understand it. But the exciting feeling persisted. When he came to call, his complete masculinity made Aunt Pity's well-bred and ladylike house seem small, pale, and a trifle fusty. Scarlet was not the only member of the household who reacted strangely and unwillingly to his presence for her kept Aunt Pity in a flutter and a fervent. While Pity knew Ellen would disapprove of his calls on her daughter, and knew also that the edict of Charleston banning him from polite society was not one to be lightly disregarded, she could no more resist his elaborate compliments and hand-kissing than a fly can resist a honeypot. Moreover, he usually brought her some little gift from Nassau, which he assured her he had purchased especially for her and blockaded in at risk of his life. Papers of pins and needles, buttons, spools of silk thread and hairpins. 
It was almost impossible to obtain these small luxuries now. Ladies were wearing hand-wilted wooden hairpins and covering acorns. Yeah, acorns with cloth or buttons. And Pity lacked the moral stamina to refuse them. Besides, she had a childish love of surprise packages and could not resist opening his gifts. And having once opened them, she did not feel that she could refuse him, refuse them. Then, having accepted the, his gifts, she could not summon cu- courage enough to tell him his reputation made it improper for him to call on. Three lone women who had no male protector. Aunt Pity always felt that she needed a male protector from when Rhett Butler was in the home. I don't know what it is about him, she would sigh helplessly but well i think he's a nice attractive man and i could just feel that well that deep down in his heart he respected women i don't know what pity's accent is i don't know what i gave it to her all right since the return of her wedding ring melanie had felt that Rhett was a gentleman of rare refinement and delicacy and she was shocked at his remark. this remark. He was unfailingly courteous to her, and she was a little timid with him, largely because she was shy with any man she had not known from childhood. Secretly, she was very sorry for him, a feeling which would have amused him had he been aware of it. She was certain that some romantic sorrow had blighted his life and made him hard and bitter, and she felt that what he needed was the love of a good woman. In all her sheltered life, she had never seen evil and could scarcely credit its existence and when gossip whispered things about Rhett and the girl in Charleston she was shocked and unbelieving and instead of turning her against him only made her more timidly gracious toward him because of her indignation at what she fancied was a gross injustice done him. Scarlet silently agreed with Aunt Pity. She too felt that he had no respect for any woman unless perhaps for Melanie. She still felt unclothed every time his eyes ran up and down her figure. It was not that he ever said anything. Then she could have scorched him with hot words. It was a bold way his eyes looked out of her swarthy face with a displeasing air of insolence, as if all women were his property to be enjoyed in his own good time. Only with Melanie was his look absent. Oh, was this look absent. There was never that cool look of appraisal, never mockery in his eyes when he looked at Melanie, and there was an a special note in his voice when he spoke to her, courteous, respectful, anxious to be of service. I don't see why you're so much nicer to her than to me, said Scarlet petulantly, one afternoon when Melanie and Pity had retired to take their naps and she was alone with him. For an hour, she had watched Rhett hold the yarn Melanie was winding for knitting, had noted the blank, inscru- inscrutable expression when Melanie talked at length and with pride of Ashley in its promotion. Scarlet knew Rhett had no exalted opinion of Ashley and cared nothing at all about the fact that he had been made a major. Yet, he made polite replies and remembered the correct things about Ashley's gallantry. And... If I so much as mentioned Ashley's name, she had, she said, she had thought irritably. He cocks his eyebrows up and smiles that nasty, noisy smile. 
I'm much prettier than she is, she continued, and I don't see why you're nice to her. Dare I hope that you are jealous? Oh, don't presume. Another hope crushed. If I am nicer to Mrs. Wilkes, it is because she deserves it. She is one of the very few kind, sincere, and unselfish persons I have ever known. But perhaps you have failed to note these qualities. And moreover, for all of her youth, she is one of the few great ladies I have ever been privileged to know. Do you mean to say you don't think I'm a great lady now, too? I think we agreed on the occasion of our first meeting that you were no lady at all. Oh, if you are going to be hateful and rude enough to bring that up again, how can you hold that bit of childish temper against me? That was so long ago, and I've grown up since then, and I'd forget all about it if, it, if you weren't always harping and hinting about it. I don't think it was childish temper, and I don't believe you've changed. You are just as capable now as then of throwing vases if you don't get your own way. But you usually get your own way, and so there's no necessity for broken bric-a-bac. Bric-a-bac, right? Oh, you are... I wish I was a man. I'd call you out and, and get killed for your pains. I can drill a dime at 50 yards. Better stick to your own weapons, dimples, vases, and the like. You are just a rascal. Do you expect me to fly into a rage at, fl at that? I am sorry to disappoint you. You can't make me mad by calling me names that are true. Certainly I'm a rascal, and why not? It's a free country, and a man may be a rascal if he chooses. It's on only hypocrites like you, my dear lady, just as black at heart but trying to hide it, who become enraged when called by their right names. She was helpless before his calm smile and his drawling remarks, for she had never before met anyone who was so completely impregnable. Her weapons of scorn, coldness, and abuse blunted in his hands, for nothing she could say would shame him. It had been her experience that the liar was the hottest to defend was the hottest to defend his ferocity, the coward his courage, the ill-bred his gentlemanliness, gentlemanliness, and the cad his honor, but not Rhett. He admitted everything and laughed and dared her to say more. He came and went during these months, arriving un unheralded and leaving without saying goodbye. Scarlet never discovered just what business brought him to Atlanta, for a few other blockaders found it necessary to come so far away from the coast. They landed their cargoes at Wilmington or Charleston, where they were met by swarms of merchants and specu speculators from all over the South who assembled to buy blockade, blockaded goods at auction. It would have pleased her to think that he made those trips to see her, but... Even her abnormal vanity refused to believe this. If he had ever once made love to her, seemed jealous of the other men who crowded about her, even tried to hold her hand or begged for a picture or handkerchief to cherish, she would have thought triumphantly he had been caught by her charms. But he remained annoyingly unlover-like, and worst of all, seemed to see through all her maneuverings to bring him to his knees.
Whenever he came to town, there was a feminine fluttering. Not only did the romantic aura of the dashing blockader hang about him, but there was also the titillating element of the wicked and the forbidden. He had such a bad reputation, and every time the matrons of Atlanta gathered together to gossip, his reputation grew worse, which only made him all the more glamorous of the young girls. As most of them were quite innocent, they had heard little more than that he was quite loose with women, and exactly how a man went about the business of being loose, they did not know. They also heard whispers that no girl was safe with him. With such a reputation, it was strange that he had never so much as kissed the hand of an unmarried girl since he first appeared in Atlanta, but that only served to make him more mysterious and more exciting. Outside of the army heroes, he was the most talked-about man in Atlanta. Everyone knew in detail how he had been expelled from West Point for drunkenness and something about women. That terrific scandal concerning the Charleston girl, he had compromised and the brother he had killed was public property. Correspondence with Charleston friends elicited... (laughs) The further information that his father, a charming old gentleman with an iron will and a ramrod for a black bone, had cast him out without a penny when he was 20 and even stricken his name from the family Bible. After that, he had wandered to California in the gold rush of 1849 and thence in South America and Cuba and the reports of his activities in these parts were none too savory. Scrapes about women, several shootings, gun running to the revolutionists in Central America, and worst of all, professional gambling were included in his career as Atlanta heard it. <laughs> professional gambling. <laughs> worst of all. Um, there was hardly a family in Georgia who could not own to their sorrow at least one male member or relative who gambled losing money, houses, land, and slaves. But that was different. A man could gamble himself to poverty and still be a gentleman, but a professional gambler could never be anything but an outcast. Had it not been for the upset conditions due to the war and his own services to the Confederate government, Rhett Butler would never have been received in Atlanta. But now, even the most straight-laced felt that patriotism called upon them to be more broad-minded. The more sentimental were inclined to view that the black sheep of the Butler family had repented of his evil ways and was making an attempt to atone for his sins. For the ladies felt in duty bound to stretch a point, especially in the case of a so interpreted brocader. Everyone knew now that the fate of the Confederacy rested as much upon the skill of the blockade boats and eluding the Yankees' fleet as it did upon the soldiers at the front. Rumor had it that Captain Butler was one of the best pilots in the South and that he was reckless and utterly without nerves. Reared in Charleston, he knew every inlet, creek, a hole, and rock of the Carolina coast near that port, and he was equally at home in the waters around Wilmington. He had never lost a bow or even been forced to stump a cargo. At the onset of the war, he had emerged from obscurity with enough money to buy a small swift boat, and now, when blockaded, goods realized 2,000% 
on each cargo, he owned four boats. He had good pilots and paid them well. And they slid out of Charleston and Wilmington on dark nights, bearing cotton for Nassau, England, and Canada. The cotton mills of England were standing idle, and the workers were starving, and many a blockader who could outwit the Yankee fleet could command his own price in Liverpool. Rhett's boats were singularly lucky, both in taking out cotton for the Confederacy and bringing in the war materials for which the South was desperate. Yes, the ladies felt they could forgive and forget a great many things for such a brave man. He was a dashing figure, and one that people turned to look at. He spent money freely, rode a wild black stallion, and wore clothes which were always the height of style and tailoring. The latter in itself was enough to attract attention to him, but for the uniforms of the soldiers were dingy and worn, and the civilians, even when turned out in their best, showed skillful patching and darning. Scarlet thought she had never seen such elegant pants as he wore, fawn-colored shepherd's plaid and checkered. And as for his waistcoats, they were indescribably handsome, especially the white watered silk one with tiny pink rosebuds embroiled on, on, on the and he wore these garments with a still more elegant air as though unaware of their glory. There were few ladies who could resist his charms when he chose to exert them, and finally even Mrs. Merriweather unbent and invited him to Sunday dinner. Maybell Merriweather was to marry her little suave when he got his next furlough, and she cried every time she thought of it for she had set her heart on marrying in a white satin dress, and there was no white satin in the Confederacy. Nor could she borrow a dress, for the satin wedding dresses of years past had all gone into the making of battle flags. Useless for the patriotic... Uh, yeah, Mrs. Merriweather to upbraid her daughter and point out that homespun was a proper bridal attire for Confederate bride. Maybell wanted satin... She was willing, even proud, to go without hairpins and buttons and nice shoes and candy and tea for the sake of the cause, but she wanted a satin wedding dress. Vret, hearing of this from Melanie, brought in from England yards and yards of gleaming white satin and a lace veil and presented them to her as a wedding gift. He did it in such a way that it was unthinkable to even mention paying him for them. And Maybell was so delighted she almost kissed him. Mrs. Merriweather knew that so expensive a gift and a gift of clothing at that was highly improper, but she could think of no way of refusing when Rhett told her in the most florid language that nothing was too good to deck the bride of one of her brave heroes. So Mrs. Merriweather invited him to dinner, feeling that this concession more than paid for the gift. He not only th brought Maybell the satin, but he was able to give excellent hints on the making of the wedding dress. Hoops in Paris were wider in the season, and skirts were shorter. They were no longer ruffled, but were gathered up in scalloped festoons, showing braided petticoats under beneath. He said, too, that he had seen no pantalettes on the streets, so he imagined they were out. Afterwards, Mrs. Merriweather told Mrs. Elsing 
She feared that if she had given him any encouragement at all, he would have told her exactly what kind of drawers were being worn by Parisianines. It's like spaced out, so it's like Parisianines. Had he, oh, like Paris, Paris women. Had he been less obviously masculine, his ability to recall details of dresses, bonnets, and culverts would have been put down on the rankest infamacy. The ladies always felt a little odd when they besieged him with questions about styles, and they did it nevertheless. They were so isolated from the world of fashion as shipwrecked mariners for few books of fashion came through the blockade for all they knew the ladies of france might be shaving their heads and wearing coonskin capes caps so rhett's memory for furbos as an excellent substitute for goodies ladies books he could and did notice details so dear to feminine hearts and after each trip abroad he could be found in the center of the group of ladies telling that bonnets were smaller this year and perched higher covering most of the top of the head the plumes and not flowers were being used to trim them and the empress of france had abandoned the chinon for evening wear and had her hair piled almost on the top of her head showing all of her ears and that evening frocks were shockingly low again For some months, he was the most popular and romantic figure the town knew, despite his previous reputation, despite the faint rumors that he was engaged not only in blockading but in speculating on foodstuffs too. People who did not like him said that after every trip he made to Atlanta, prices jumped $5. But even with this undercover gossip, seeping about he could have retained his popularity had he considered it worth retaining instead it seemed as though after trying to company the company of the strayed and patriotic citizens and winning their respect and grudging like something perverse in him made him go out of his way to affront them and shove show them that his conduct had been only a masquerade and one which no longer amused him. It was as though he bore an impersonal contempt for everyone and everything in the South, the Confederacy in particular, and took no pains to conceal it. It was his remarks about the Confederacy that made Atlanta look at him first in bewilderment, then coolly, and then with hot rage. Even before 1862 passed into 1863, men were bowing to him with studied frigidity frigidity and women beginning to draw their daughters to their sides when he appeared at the gathering he seemed to take pleasure not only in affronting the sincere and red-hot loyalties of atlanta but in presenting himself in the worst possible light when well-meaning people complimented him on his bravery in running the blockade he blandly replied that he was always frightened when he in danger as frightened as were the brave boys at the front. Everyone knew there had never been a cowardly Confederate soldier, and they found his statement peculiarly irritating. Being frightened doesn't mean you're cowardly. The fact that you're frightened and you're still going for it means you're brave. Just saying. Anyway, 
Um, he always referred to the soldiers as our brave boys and our heroes in gray and did it in such a way as to convey the utmost in insult. When daring young ladies, hoping for a flirtation, thanked him for being one of the heroes who fought for them, he bowed and declared that such was not the case, for he would do the same thing for Yankee women if the same amount of money were involved. Since Scarlett's first meeting with him in Atlanta on the night of the bazaar, he had talked with her in this manner, but now there was a thinly, thinly veiled note of mockery in his conversations with everyone. When praised for his services to the Confederacy, he unfailingly replied that blockading was a business with him. If he could make as much money out of the government contracts, he would say, picking out with his eyes those who had government contracts, then he would certainly abandon the hazards of blockading and take to selling shoddy cloth, sanded sugar, spoiled flour, and rotten leather to the Confederacy. Most of his remarks were unanswerable, which made them all the worse. There had already been minor scandals about those holding government contracts. Letters from men at the front complained constantly of shoes that wore out in a week, gunpowder that would not ignite, harness that snapped at any strain, meat that was rotten and flour that was full of weevils. Atlanta people tried to think that the men who sold such stuff to the government must be contract holders from Alabama or Virginia or Tennessee and not Georgians. For did not the Georgia contract holders include men from the very best families? Were they not the first to contribute to the hospital funds and to the aid of the soldiers' orphans? Were they not the first to cheer at Dixie and the most rampant seekers in oratory, at least, for Yankee blood? The full tide of fury against those profiteering on the government contracts had not yet risen, and Rhett's words were taken merely as evidence of his own bad breeding. He not only affronted the town with insinuations of finality on the part of men in high places and slurs on the courage of the men in the field, but he took pleasure in tricking the dignified citizenry into embarrassing situations. He could no more resist picking the conceits, the hypocrites, hypocrisies, and the flamboyant patriotism of those about him than a small boy can resist putting a pin into a balloon. He neatly deflated the pompous and exposed the ignorant and the bigoted, and he did it in such subtle ways drawing his victim out by his seemingly courteous interest, that they never were quite certain that what had happened until they stood exposed as windy, high-flown, and slightly ridiculous. During the months when he, the town accepted him, Scarlet had been under no illusions about him. She knew that his elaborate gallantries and his florid speeches were all done with his tongue and cheek, and his cheek. She knew that he was acting the part of the dashing and patriotic blockade runner simply because it amused him. Sometimes he seemed to her like the county boys with whom she had grown up. The wild Tarleton twins were with their obsession for practical jokes. The devil-inspired Fontaines teasing mischievous. The culverts who would sit up at night, all night planning hoaxes. But then there was a difference for 
beneath Rhett's seeming lightness, there was something malicious, almost sinister, in his in its suave brutality. Through though she was thoroughly aware of his sincerity, she much preferred him in the role of the romantic locator. For one thing, it made her own situation in associating with him so much easier than it had been at first. So she was intensely annoyed when he dropped his masquerade and set out apparently upon a deliberate campaign to alienate Atlanta's goodwill. It annoyed her because it seemed foolish and also because some of the harsh criticism directed at him fell on her. It was at Mrs. Elsing's Silver Musical for the benefit of the convalescents that Rhett signed his final warrant of ostracism. That afternoon, the Elsing home was crowded with soldiers on leave and men from the hospitals, members of the Home Guard and the militia unit, and matrons, widows, and young girls. Every chair in the home was occupied, and even the long, winding stair was packed with guests. The large cut glass bowl held at the door by the Elsing's butler had been emptied twice of the burden of the silver coins. That in itself was enough to make the affair a success, for now a dollar in silver was worth $60 in Confederate paper money. Every girl with an, any pretense to accomplishments had sung or played the piano, and the tableau vivants had been greeted with flattering applause. Scarlet was much pleased with herself, for not only had she and Melanie rendered a touching duet when the dew is on the blossom, followed by an encore by the more sprightly, Oh, Lord, ladies, don't mind Stephen. <laughs> but she had also been chosen to represent the spirit of Confederacy and the last tubbo. She had looked most fetching, wearing a modestly draped Greek robe of white cheesecloth girded with red and blue and holding the stars and bars in one hand, while with the other she stretched out to the kneeling Captain Ka- Carrie Ashburn of a- Alabama, the gold-hilted saber which had belonged to Charles and his father. When her tabu- tablo- tableau was over, she could not help seeking Rhett's eyes to see if he had appreciated the pretty picture she made. With a feeling of exasperation, she now saw that he was in an argument and probably had not even noticed her. Scarlet would could see by the faces of the group surrounding him that they were infuriated by what he was saying. She made her way toward him, and in one of those odd silences which sometimes fall on a gathering, she heard Willie Gun- Gunnan of the militia outfit say plainly, Do I understand, sir, that you mean the cause for which our heroes have died is not sacred? If you were run over by a railroad train, your death wouldn't sanctify the railroad company, would it? Asked Rhett, and his voice sounded as if he were humbly secret in formation. Sir, said Willie, his voice shaking, if we were not under this roof, I tremble to think what would happen, said Rhett, for, of course, your bravery is too well known. Willie went scarlet, and all conversation ceased. Everyone was embarrassed. Willie was strong and healthy and of military age, and yet he wasn't at the front. 
Of course, he was the only boy his mother had, and after all, somebody had to be in the mil- to be in the militia to protect the state. But there was a few irreverent snickers from convalescent officers when Rent spoke of bravery. Oh, why doesn't he keep his mouth shut? Thought Scarlet indignantly. He's simply spoiling the whole party. Doctor Mead's brows were thunderous. Nothing may be sacred to you, young man," he said in the voice he always used when making speeches. "But there are many things sacred to the patriarch men and ladies of the South, and the freedom of our land from the usurper of one and states' rights in another." And Rhett looked lazy, and his voice had a silky, almost bored note. "All words are sacred," he said to those who have to fight them. If the people who started wars didn't make them sacred, who would be foolish enough to fight? But no matter what rallying cries the orators give to the idiots who fight, no matter what noble purposes they assign to wars, there is never but one reason for a war, and that is money. All wars are in reality money, squabbles, but so few people ever realize it. Their ears are too full of bugles, few and drums, and the fine words from stay-at-home orders. Sometimes the railing cry is, save the tomb of Christ from the heathens. Sometimes it's down with poverty, and sometimes liberty, and sometimes cotton slavery and states' rights. Um, what on earth has the Pope to do with it, thought Scarlet. Oh, or Christ's homes either. But as she hurried toward the incensed group, she saw Rhett bow jauntily and start toward the doorway through the crowd. She started after him, but Mrs. Elson caught her skirt and held her. Let him go, she said in a clear voice that carried throughout the tensely quiet room. Let him go. He is a traitor, a speculator. He is a viper that we have nursed to our bosoms. Rhett, standing in the hall, his hat in his hand, heard and he was intended to hear, and turning, surveyed the room for a moment. He looked poignantly at Mrs. Elsing, flat bosom, grinned suddenly, and bowing, made his exit. <laughs> Mrs. Merriweather rode home in Aunt Pity's carriage, and sa- scarcely had the four ladies seated themselves when she exploded. There now, M- Pity Pat Hamilton, I hope you are satisfied. With what? cried Pity appro- apprehensively. With the conduct of that wretched Rhett Butler man you've been harboring. Pity Pat fluttered, too upset by this accusation to recall that Mrs. Merriweather had also been Rhett Butler's hostess on several occasions. Scarlet and Melanie thought of this, but bred to politeness in their elders, refrained from remarking on the matter. Instead, they studiously looked down at their mittened hands. He insulted all and the Confederacy, too, said Mrs. Merriweather, and her stout bust heaved violently beneath its glittering passamentary trimmings, saying that we were fighting the money for money, saying that our leaders and had lied to us, 
He should be put in jail. Yes, he should. I shall speak to Dr. Mead about it. If Mr. Merriweather were only alive, he'd tend to him. Now, pity Pat, pity Hamilton. You listen to me. You mustn't ever let that scamp come into your house again. Oh, muttered Pity, helplessly looking as if she wished she were dead. She looked appealingly at the two girls who kept their eyes cast down and then hopefully toward Uncle Peter's erect back. She knew he was listening attentively to every word, and she hoped he would turn and take a hand in her conversation, as he frequently did. She hoped he would say, Now, Miss Dolly, you let Miss Pity be. But Peter made no more. He disapproved heartily of Rhett Butler. And poor Pity knew it. She sighed and said, Well, Dolly, if you do, if you think, I do think, um, returned Mrs. Merriweather firmly. I can't imagine what possessed you to see him in the first place after this afternoon. There won't be a decent home in town that he'll be welcome in. Do get up some gumption and forbid him your home. She turned a sharp eye on the girls. I hope you two are making my, marking my words, she continued, for it's partly your fault being so pleasant to him. Just tell him politely but firmly that his presence and his disloyal talk are distinctly unwelcome in your home. By this time, Scarlet was boiling, ready to rear like a horse on the torch of a strange roof. Whoa, what? What? Okay. Strange rough hand on the brittle, but she was afraid to speak. She could not risk Mrs. Merriweather writing another thought letter to her mother. You old buffalo, she thought, her face crimson with suppressed fury. How heavenly it would be to tell you just what I think of you in your lousy ways. I never thought to live long enough to hear such disloyal words spoken of our cause, went on Mrs. Merriweather, by this time in a ferment of righteous anger. Airy men who do not think our cause is just and holy should be hanged. I didn't want to hear of you two girls ever seeing, even speaking to him again. For heaven's sake, Melly, what ails you? Melanie was white and her eyes were enormous. I will speak to him again, she said in a low voice. I will not be made rude to him. I will not forbid him the house. Mrs. Merriweather's breath went out of the lungs. It's explosively as though she had been punched. Aunt Pity, Pity's fat mouth plopped open and Uncle Peter turned to stare. Now why didn't I have the gumption to do that? Scarlet thought, jealousy, jealousy mixing with admiration. How did that little rabbit ever get up spunk enough to stand up to old Lady Merriweather? Melanie's hands were shaking, but she went on hurriedly as though fearing her courage would fail her if she delayed. I won't be rude to him because of what he said, because it was rude of him to say it aloud, most ill-advised, but it's it's what Ashley thinks, and I can't forbid the house to a man who thinks what my husband thinks. It would be unjust. Mrs. Merriweather's breath had come back, and she 
charged. And she charged. Millie Hamilton, I never heard such a lie in all my life. They, There was never a Wilkes who was a co coward. I never said Ashley was a coward, said Melanie, her eyes beginning to flash. I said he thinks what Hatton Butler thinks, only he expresses it different words, and he doesn't go around saying it at musicals, I hope, but he has written it to me. Scarlet's guilty conscience stirred as she tried to recall what Ashley might have written that would lead Melanie to make such a statement, but most of the letters she had read had gone out of her head as soon as she finished reading them. She believed Melanie had simply taken leave of her senses. Ashley, Ashley wrote me that he, we should not be fighting the Yankees and that we have been betrayed into it by statesmen and orators mouthing crouch words and prejudices said Melanie rapidly. He said nothing in the world was worth what was what this war was going to do in, to us. He said here wasn't anything at all to glory. It was just misery and dirt. Oh, that letter, thought Scarlet. Was that what he meant? I don't believe it, said Mrs. Merriweather firmly. I've misunderstood his meeting. You've misunderstood his meaning. I never misunderstand Ashley, Melanie replied quietly, though her lips were trembling. I understand him perfectly. He meant exactly what Ma Captain Butler meant, only he didn't say it in, in a rude way. You should be ashamed of yourself comparing a fine man like Ashley Wilkes to a scoundrel like Captain Butler. I suppose you, too, think the cause is nothing. I, I, I don't know what I think, Melanie began. It's uncertainly, her fire descend, deserting her in panic at her outspokenness taking hold of her. I, I die in the cause, I, like Ashley would. But I, I mean, I mean, I'll let the men folks do the thinking because they were so much smarter. I never heard the like, snorted Mrs. Merriweather. Stop, Uncle Peter. You're driving past my house. Uncle Peter, preoccupied with the conversation behind him, had driven past the Merriweather carriage block, and it's he backed up the horse. Mrs. Merriweather alighted, her bonnet ribbons shaking like sails in the storm. You'll be sorry, she said. Uncle Peter whipped up the horse. You young misses ought to be take shame getting Miss Pity in a state, he scolded. I'm not in a state, replied Pity, surprisingly, for least for less strain than this had frequently brought on fainting fits. Melly, honey, I knew you were doing it just to take up for me in reality really. I was glad to see somebody take Dolly down a peg. She's so bossy. How did you know the courage? But do you think you should have said that about Ashley? But it's true, snapped Melanie, and she began to cry softly. And and I've, I'm ashamed that he thinks that way. He thinks the war is 
all wrong, but he's willing to fight and die anyway. And that there's lots more courage than fighting the something you think is right. Lord, Miss Melanie, don't cry, don't cry here on Peachtree Street, groaned Uncle Peter, humming his horse's grace. Folks will talk something scandalous. Wait till you gets home. Scarlet said nothing. She did not even squeeze the hand that Melanie had inserted into her palm for comfort. She had read Ashley's letters for only one purpose, to assure herself that he still loved her. Now Melanie had given a new meaning to passages in the letters, which Scarlet's eyes had barely seen. It shocked her to realize that Everyone as absolutely perfect, anyone as absolutely perfect as Ashley could have any thought in common with such a reprobate as Brett Butler. She thought, they both see the truth of this war, but Ashley is willing to die about it and Rhett isn't. I think that shows Rhett's good sense. She paused a moment, horror struck that she could have such a thought about Ashley. They both see the same unpleasant truth, but Rhett like, likes to look at it in the face and enrage people by talking about it, and Ashley can hardly bear to face it. It was very bewildering. 